Kevin Durant's trade request. Rudy Gobert, Delta, Minnesota for how much? And plenty of Supermax deals to be signed on the dotted line. Headline the past few days that were in the NBA free agency trade landscape. I'll have plenty to say on all of it. Plus, the Dodgers were this close from making a statement in the NL West. Iga Schwantek and Coco Goff are out on the women's side at Wimbledon. The over-the-top behavior of Nick Kyrgios as he competes on the men's side. USC and UCLA will say goodbye to the Pac-12 and hello to the Big Ten. What does this mean for college football? There'll be plenty of fireworks and grill marks all over this holiday edition of the podcast. It's all coming up, but first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You could also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? is happening my good people greetings how are you how's it going how's everybody doing out there what is the latest and greatest hope everybody's well feeling fantastic in excellent spirits and why not we've reached the ultimate summer holiday independence day just past the halfway point of the calendar year i'm sure most of you are kicking back sparking up the grill grabbing a few cold ones from the cooler or even taking a dive into the pool or ocean for that matter And even if you peep this well after the 4th of July, I hope you enjoy your day and your holiday weekend no matter what you're doing, whether it's all the above or something else. But now it's time to get into all that's happening in the world of sports and you've come to the right place to listen to it all as there's quite a bit to delve into as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. Lots to get cracking here, even as we turn the calendar into July, and with the fall and winter sports long in our rearview mirror, and pretty much focusing on the summer sport, with that being baseball, we still have some Wimbledon to get to, the behavior of Nick Kyrgios has it grown tiresome, the display that he had back and forth with he and the umpire there on Saturday, we'll get into that, as well as what's happening In football, not the NFL, as we're still a few weeks away from training camps, but the Pac-10, or Pac-12, I should say, no longer will be in the not-too-distant future as USC and UCLA will be packing their bags to go to the Big Ten. 
What does that mean for that conference? What does that mean for the sport on a whole and college football? Ugh, that is a cesspool, which I will dissect a little bit later on. All the baseball, where we're pretty much at the halfway point, there's actually a couple of teams that either are at 81 games or even a smidge above that. So we'll go through it, including the Dodgers, who had a chance to put a, maybe not a stranglehold on the NOS, but certainly could have really dictated who's boss, and they had a bad loss there yesterday as they were going for a sweep over San Diego. Even some news about Jacob DeGrom, Max Scherzer, so the Met fan can rejoice a little bit. But we got to pump the brakes. I'll dissect that as well. And everything else that we could get into, what's happening in the world of sports, you know I got you covered. But we're going to start off here with the NBA. And yes, I know I just mentioned the fall and winter sports have long been in the rearview mirror. Obviously, we know that the NBA champion was crowned a couple of weeks ago, but now as we get into this part of the offseason and what we've witnessed here over the last few days, quieted down a little bit yesterday and maybe Saturday, but everything that happened pretty much from last Tuesday to, I would say, right before the start of this weekend was a whirlwind to say the least. So many deals signed, Supermax deals, which should we really even discuss Nikola Jokic getting the five-year up to $270 million deal. Or Bradley Beal's Supermax extension in Washington. Same for Devin Booker, Zach Levine, John Morant, Carl Anthony Towns, even Zion Williamson, who did not play last year. We know about his injury history, how he got his big deal, and you understand why, because the Pelicans feel as if they could get to the next level, and if Zion is 100% healthy, they are banking all their money as they backed up the truck to pay the former Duke player, and we're going to have to wait and see how he performs once we get closer to training camp and the start of the regular season. And we could talk about how much money they're getting, and it's exorbitant, and how could they get these salaries, and the CBA, players and owners, they came up with this. And obviously with all the streaming and how global the NBA is, and the money that they've gotten from other factions, whether it's overseas in China, as we all know, or a lot of the deals from TNT, ESPN, I'm sure you're going to get somewhere down the road, maybe even Amazon will probably throw in a kicker to broadcast some games, so that's why you have these big deals, where the player, whether they stay at home to get the five-year mega deal, or if they take their talents elsewhere, and get one year off, but still get money that we can never even imagine over the course of a four-year span where they're making upwards of $45, $50 million. That's just to lay the land in the NBA as it is in 2022. But we could get into all that, but the top story coming out of the past week and Thursday was huge after I recorded, edited, and posted the podcast Around 2.30, 3pm on Thursday, news came out that Kevin Durant has requested a trade from the Brooklyn Nets and his shortlist was the Phoenix Suns or the Miami Heat. Now there may be another team that's on there that we may not be privy of, but as we digest what took place there and obviously Twitter and all of social media was a buzz considering the dysfunction of the Nets this past year and pretty much since the beginning of the whole Kyrie, KD, not going to say reunion, we'll just say union for now. How they've only been able to play but a handful of games together because of KD's injury coming into that first year, rehabbing from the Achilles. 
Then we talk about last year with COVID and in and out of the lineup was Kyrie Irving for reasons that we already well know about the vaccine and his stance on that. Kevin Durant getting injured midway through the season. And the only thing they have to show for it up until this point is a first round series victory over the Boston Celtics two playoffs ago. And then after that, we all know about the big toe of Kevin Durant stepping on the line, making that three at the time, but knowing it just tied the game and then losing in overtime to the eventual NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks. And then this past season was just, quite frankly, a shit show. To know that the potential of having these two players and then you bring in a guy like James Harden and then later on Ben Simmons who doesn't suit up and now you have a scenario where Kevin Durant says, I want out. And as we all know, in this generation, specifically over the last 10 to 12 years, the NBA player empowerment is at an all-time high. Sadly, as much as I could blame Kevin Durant and the system and the top players in the league being able to call their own shots, being able to make power moves, having that authority, power, the brand, whatever you want to call it. But just like I said last week, when I destroyed the Nick front office, I'm going to have to do that for the Nets as well because they are front and center of the blame in all this. And even though last week was a different set of circumstances with the Knicks because we talked about how their silence was deafening. How the Knicks fan needs to know what the direction, what the plan, what Leon Rose and William Wesley is going to do as far as making the postseason two years ago, not making the postseason this year. Okay, you signed Jalen Brunson, you made all these trades, but is there more to come as far as maybe bringing in not a top flight superstar, but at least somebody to compliment Julius Randle, who has fallen off a little bit from his success two years ago, and then Brunson, who I think is a nice player, but not someone that's going to take you to the promised land. So as much as I buried the Knicks on what their plan is, now I have to bury the Nets on them just not only being dysfunctional, but letting this opportunity slip through their hands. And I'll start back to before Kyrie and KD became a part of the Net program in the 2019 offseason because if you remember Sean Marks Kenny Atkinson had to dig out from the rubble of the 2013 trade by Billy King the former GM of the Nets we all know and I talked about this in the past but real quick Paul Pierce Kevin Garnett Jason Terry for the pick swaps from 2013 2015 2017 and then you had the pick swaps in 2016 and 18 And we all know what the Celtics netted in that deal. Of course, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum were the two highlights on both of those drafts where, as we've seen, the Celtics made it to not only several conference finals, but of course the NBA finals this past season. And Danny Ainge, we're going to talk about him a little bit later on because he's pretty much working his magic in Utah, similar to what he did with that trade with Billy King. So now they had to pretty much start from scratch after one playoff series win by the Nets and Pierce goes to Washington, KG goes to Minnesota, I even forgot where Jason Terry went and now you had a scenario where the Nets had no draft picks, they really had to start from ground zero and work their way up to the point where they rebuilt the culture, 
with a young coach who a lot of the players on the team at that time bought in, the Karis LeVerts of the world, the D'Angelo the, the Russells, who was the ultimate team player, look it up when he was in a Brooklyn Net uniform, the Spencer Dinwiddies of the world, the Jarrett Allens of the world. You had a good young nucleus that you could actually build toward maybe making some respect and some noise in an Eastern Conference. Were they a championship-ready team? Were they going to be contenders in the Eastern Conference? Maybe not. Maybe they'd win a round or maybe surprise in the second round and get to a conference final. But you knew the Nets had to make another move in order for them to really be relevant, in order for them to really stand out and compete with the behemoths of the conference. But as it was, opportunity came at them to the point where they were able to sign both Kyrie and KD. And I know this is a little bit of a history lesson, but this all ties in to the front office. And at that point, all the culture, all of the inner workings of an organization that was trying to get some respectability, that was trying to do its best to gain some kind of leverage in this town because the Knicks, as bad as they were, and they were making their slight moves here and there, but they knew that they were doing it the right way. They weren't trying to buy pieces or get that free agent, and maybe they were going in that trajectory, but not to the point where they were able to get both Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant in the same summer, pretty much on the same day in the 2019 offseason. And even with Durant, as I mentioned, not being able to play in that first year, everybody was going gaga knowing that the Brooklyn Nets could not only be relevant, but also championship ready to the point where they were going to take over the town. And even with that being said, after that first year, And even in that second year where things didn't really start to come together at first. And then they trade for James Harden in January of 2021. And everybody's thinking, even with an out-of-shape Harden, even with a guy that had to fit in with two major superstars and one that he played with in the past in Oklahoma City, that this was going to be a championship in the making. And as I mentioned a little while ago, they lose to the Bucs in the second round at home in a Game 7. And then this coming year, 21-22, where you had all three guys, oh, wait a minute, Kyrie cannot play in the home games because of the state and city mandates when it comes to unvaccinated workers, I'll just say, performing indoors. And at first, the Nets told him to stay at home. He couldn't even play in the road games. But then as we saw, he was able to be a part of the team. I don't want to say they capitulated, but... For the most part, they had Kyrie back in the fold to where he was only playing road games. And then in late March, he was able to play in home games. But by then, James Harden asked for his exit because he didn't want to be a part of what was going on here in Brooklyn. He didn't, quote unquote, sign up for taking a lot of the load off of Kyrie Irving because he obviously didn't play from the start of the year. And made his move down the turnpike to Philadelphia to bring back Ben Simmons, who, as we know, still has not suited up in a Brooklyn Net uniform. And you have all of this function, Kevin Durant's injury, Simmons not being able to play. Okay, Kyrie is back, and now he's playing home games. And then a first-round sweep at the hands of the Boston Celtics, who they beat the year prior in that same first round. But the seeds flip-flop from 2-7, where the Nets were 2 Boston 7, two years prior, and then this past year was the other way around, and we saw what happened there. 
And now we get to a point where last Monday, Kyrie was on the cusp of buying in his one-year $36.9 million contract to opt in and then wonder what his future was going to be after that. And then the news comes down on Thursday where Kevin Durant says, I want out. Here are my teams. Do what you got to do. Now let's get to the front office. I know it was a whole long drag out deal, but for those who aren't familiar with the situation or just new to the podcast and kind of want to wonder what's going on with the Brooklyn Nets and where I'm coming from, I laid it out for you. Now let's get to the nuts and bolts. It was reported that Sean Marks was going to do whatever it takes to get Durant out of here. And he said that he was going to get the best possible deal for this organization. So he just wasn't going to trade Kevin Durant for 50 cents on the dollar, even 75 cents for the dollar. He wanted to make sure that he was going to get a plethora, whether it's ready-made talent now, a combination of talent and future draft picks, whatever it may be, he was going to get a boatload. And I'm sure, and I'll get to in a minute, what he saw Danny Ainge do with Minnesota as he traded Rudy Gobert to the Timberwolves for not only players, but four future first-round picks where three of those are unprotected. And I'm sure that got to Sean Marks right away to think, I got to do something close to that, because if not, that's going to be my hide. So now back to Marks. As much as he wants to accommodate Kevin Durant, and I'm sure maybe even down the road Kyrie Irving, but here's the problem that I have with the front office. They need to show a backbone. They need to show that not only did they sign these contracts on the dotted line, but they're going to have to do a little bit of damage control. They're going to have to say to them, or at least to Durant for now, we brought you here for a reason. Granted, it may be hitched to the wagon of Kyrie Irving, and they should also bring him into the office to hash this out and get everything ironed out before this gets any worse or goes any further if they haven't done so already. But sit down with these guys to really go in-depth. They don't need to have a therapy session. This isn't rocket science by any stretch of the imagination. It should be a scenario where we brought you guys in here. We understand that we've made some mistakes. They should be fully transparent. We get it that the Harden experiment was a failure. We get it that we we don't even know what's going to happen with Ben Simmons. Yes, he's a part of this team. Yes, we don't know about his health. And maybe you just keep him out of it for right this very moment. But Durant, who signed for the next four years without an opt-out. And Kyrie, we understand, maybe he has his sights set on LA after his one year in Brooklyn is done. But with the mandate fully passed in the rearview mirror, And with Durant having a four-year deal, and I understand that you're going to want to get a King's Ransom back, but is there a guarantee? At 34 years of age and a lot of mileage, still one of the top players in the league, no doubt. But are you going to get anything close to what you expect in return for a guy who is arguably one of the top 15 players in the history of the league? My answer to that is absolutely not. Ains worked his magic on Minnesota. I don't know if Marx is going to do that with another organization. Let's be frank. So now back to Marx and even the owner, Joseph Sy, because he needs to be in that office as well to hash all this out. Back to the drawing board. We brought you guys here for a reason. We want to win a championship. 
without you guys, we don't know where we're going to be. And yes, I understand Kevin Durant may say, I don't care, that's not my problem. But if you're Sean Marks and Joseph Sy, the owner, you come out and say, oh no, we have 190-something million reasons why we don't need to trade you. We have 190 million reasons why we don't need to trade you and that we want you to be a part of this team. And yes, we will listen to your input and feedback and we'll take it into consideration, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to kowtow to your demands or requests or whatever it may be. Remember, we can run things past you, but you're not going to green light it. We're going to do that. And granted, mistakes have been made. And yes, we probably should have all been on the same page. But now, here's where it all begins. And hopefully, they can put an end to whatever soap operas, whatever drama that has transpired here over the last couple of years. You would think a good front office and a good organization would do that. And they're actually making the Knicks look a little silly here because it's almost as if, how can you blow up a team that had so much potential, that had championship aspirations through the roof, and then now it's fizzled like a firework that's been dumped in water? If they can't have this discussion, and again, if they haven't already completed this, but somebody in the room really needs to take a stand, show a little heart, and as I like to say, testicular fortitude, and bring these guys in with a nice spread, maybe a cocktail or two afterwards, kind of loosen them up, and put everything out on the table. And I know Durant and his manager, Rich Kleiman, they're going to come out and say, "Uh uh-uh, we don't want this, or whatever. But again, this is where the transparency comes in. And at the same time, when you have an owner who has been relatively quiet, but has other interests and isn't really in the mode of let me focus on my team, let me focus on these players, let me make sure that everything is straight, not only with the front office, but with these players. You don't have to be buddy-buddy, you don't have to rub elbows, but there has to be some communication there. And if you're a Brooklyn Nets fan, you have to be disgusted. Because what you've seen here from this organization over the last few years is this build-up, then even more build up and then it's come crashing down to the point where you really have to wonder where are the hearts of your front office and the head of your organization because if he's going to let these players walk just like that then there's no hope for this franchise at all and as we've seen over the course of the Nets history other than the early part of the Jason Kidd era you pretty much have nothing to show for it And to make matters worse, you sold your basketball souls to the devil, not necessarily by bringing in Kyrie and KD, but also James Harden, also having to trade him for Ben Simmons, and then now to the point where everybody wants to jump ship, and you're pretty much maybe left with nothing in the cupboard. Because you may have to tear this thing down altogether and start over yet again. If I was the front office of the Nets, that's what I would do. I would be on the phones buying plane tickets to wherever these guys are at to have them fly into LaGuardia or JFK and meet at the Barclays Center, hash this sucker out as best you possibly can. If it's irreconcilable, then I get it. I understand. But you have to do something. You just can't all of a sudden, if you're Sean Marks, all right, we're going to do our best to get the best deal. No! You brought these guys here for a reason. 
And yes, it has imploded to this point, but uh, I, I, I'm sick and I'm not even a Nets fan. And as much as we can look at and blame Kevin Durant and say, well, there he goes, the NBA player empowerment, they're going to dictate where they want to go, they have a contract, they should honor it, so on and so forth, then yes, there's a lot of truth in that. But you also have to point the fingers at the ownership and the front office here because they're as much to blame than, it, than the player is. And if you can't see that for what it's worth, then you're not paying attention. I can go on with this. I mean, this is a whole podcast unto itself, but there's obviously other things to get to. And let me get to Ainge in Minnesota and Rudy Gobert because that one, I still can't even wrap my head around that deal. Rudy Gobert, three-time defensive player of the year, Utah Jazz, traded to the Timberwolves for players, including Patrick Beverly and a couple of others, but four first-round picks, 23, 25, 27, and I think one of them is protected maybe 29 if I'm not mistaken. Now, Rudy Gobert, as we all know, rebounds the hell out of a ball, obviously can defend, and I think it's good for Minnesota in this regard because then now, Carl Anthony Towns could freelance a little bit whether he's going to develop more of an outside game, which he can shoot from the outside, but he doesn't have to not only get all the dirty work or get all the rebounds and the putbacks. Yes, he'll be a part of, you would think, that low box, although Gobert may clog it up as far as spacing goes, so that's going to be another thing that the coach is going to have to deal with. But I think it's a good move because you'll have Towns to be able to space the floor if Gobert doesn't clog it up, especially in the middle, because as we all know and as we've seen in the past, twin tower experiments never work. But if you're able to get Anthony Edwards in line with what goes on there with Towns, as well as Gobert just clogging the middle, being that rim protector, snagging 14, 15 rebounds a game, the Timberwolves may make some noise in the West next year. But was he worth four first-round picks? This goes back to Kevin Durant. If Gobert's worth four first-round picks, then what is Durant worth? Eight? First-round picks for the next decade? I understand that Durant's older. But Gobert, uh, listen, he is not Bill Russell. And granted, he is a great defensive player. We've seen that, and he has the hardware. But for four first-round picks, I I still can't believe it. But then when I realized that Danny Ainge was the orchestrator of this deal, then how could you be surprised after everything I said earlier with what he did with the Brooklyn Nets? Just, uh, I, I, I still can't even put into words. Ainge was masterful. And the Jazz, they had to do something to break up that organization. They brought in the new coach there, as we talked about last week from the Celtics, who Ainge, I'm sure, had some ties with. And now, let's see if the T-Wolves could get themselves a notch or two up in the West after a playoff, which they should have beaten the Memphis Grizzlies. It goes without saying. They pretty much gift-wrapped that series to them, blowing 20-point leads at home and just a bunch of fourth-quarter leads, etc., so, will Gobert be that missing piece? That we'll have to wait and find out. But the other big news as far as trades go, and I like what Boston did, and give it up for what Brad Stevens has done. Trading for Malcolm Brogdon with the Indiana Pacers. Now, they gave up Daniel Tice, Aaron Neesmith, their first round 2020 pick, who has some promise and some potential. But they bring Brogdon back, a guy who's a playmaker, a guy who can handle the ball, 
6'5", could play some defense. My only problem with Brogdon is that the guy is injury prone. Just look at the games played over the last X amount of years. Last year, I believe he played 36 games. That's not going to cut it. He's going to have to stay healthy. He's going to have to play, you would think, minimum 65, 70 games tops. He cannot be on the sidelines for most of this time. And it's a little bit of a gamble. I get it. And it's a high risk, high reward at that. And I like the trade. But he has to be healthy in order for this trade to work out 100%. And that's not to say Neesmith is going to turn out to be an all-star player or whomever the 2023 first-round draft pick, which the Celtics won't have for the last two years, because remember, they gave up their number one pick to San Antonio this past year. But when you're picking in the 20s to find that rare gem, it's very hard. And yes, there are many picks that we could talk about, especially in the second round, whether your name is Draymond Green or Nikola Jokic, and there's been late first-rounders that have blossomed, and Donovan Mitchell at 13, that's a lottery pick, but you understand, and Giannis at 13, understood, but... To get somebody in the 20s, a guy that you could pretty much build your team around, very rare. So for the Celtics to make that trade, it was smart, it was wise, and I like it. But Brogdon has to stay healthy. And then you could bring Smart off the bench, so if you want to play small, you could have Smart and Brogdon in your backcourt to go along with Horford, Tatum, and Brown in the frontcourt. And speaking of front court, they also signed Danilo Gallinari, who in that trade with the Hawks and San Antonio Spurs, where DeJounte Murray went to Atlanta and Gallinari went back, he got bought out and the Celtics signed him, which I thought was a very good deal. He's tall, lean, gives you some depth there at the forward position, which the Celtics desperately needed, as you saw in the NBA Finals, as Tatum and Brown logged 44, 45 minutes a game. So now he's a guy that could score, could shoot the three, and provides that insurance there, and also just some depth at the forward position. So I thought those were two good moves there by Brad Stevens. And as far as the smaller moves, I'm not going to get into Bruce Brown, the former Nets signing with Denver, or Gary Payton II signing with Portland, Kevin Herter getting traded. We could talk about those small moves, but to me, the big thing is Durant, what the Nets should do here at this point because I don't think they're going to get back anything close to what the Utah Jazz got for Rudy Gobert and that's going to be the benchmark that trade there because if it's anything less if Durant does get jettisoned then it's a disgrace Sean Marks would just sign his walking papers and leave the Barclays Center And you would think things will start to quiet down here. A lot of these deals have pretty much been made. Who knows what's going to happen with Kyrie? I'm not even going to get into that right now. You would think he's going to stay put here for this year. As much as he may want to reunite with LeBron in LA next year. But a wild and crazy first week. What more can you say? As the NBA always seems to percolate around this time. And you would think it's going to die down. But you never know. Anything could pop up at at any certain moment. But that's what we have there with the association. All right, let me pivot. I'm going to get into baseball before I get to the tennis. Wimbledon, which is getting into its second week. The Tampa Bay Lightning already feeling the effects from not only losing the Stanley Cup, but now having to trade players and with salary caps and trying to re-sign their own players. So they have made some news here so far this offseason. 
And I'll even get to some golf and also what's happening in college football. So baseball, the Dodgers really could have made a statement here over the weekend. And rightfully so. They did win three of the four games. Tony Gonsolin is 10-0. and Tony Gonsolin? He actually may start the All-Star game considering that the All-Star game is in L.A. this year, which will be two weeks from tomorrow. And with a couple of teams that have already passed the 81-game threshold as we're pretty much right at the halfway mark of the baseball season. And I start off with the Dodgers only because Mookie Betts, after a 15-game absence with a cracked rib, he was back in the lineup yesterday. They were going for a sweep of the Padres and had a one nothing lead going into the ninth inning. And Craig Kimbrell, he is a guy that, even going back to the 2018 year with the Red Sox when they won a World Series... He's a guy that you have to cross your fingers, your eyes, legs, and hold your breath when you watch him because he is a walking tightrope disaster. And you saw it there yesterday as he spit the bit, gave up four runs, including the home run there in the ninth inning, which would have pretty much damaged the Padre psyche. I know Manny Machado's now been back in the lineup and Tatis is still a couple weeks away. But that was a huge win for the Padres to at least get out of Dodge with and salvage that final game, which would have been a tough sweep for the Padres, and it could have been psychologically, I'm not going to say damaging, but that could have been lasting, knowing that the Dodgers have pretty much had the Padres' number here over the last couple of years. So that's one to look out for in the NL West as they were able to save face yesterday at Chavez Ravine. Sticking in the NL West, the Giants got swept by the White Sox at home over the weekend as the White Sox maybe will finally get their season on track as they go to Minnesota for a big series. Or, as a matter of fact, the game games are in Chicago starting today. So they have a huge series against the Twins as they look to inch closer in the AL Central. But the Giants lost a tough series and getting swept by the White Sox puts them in a scenario where there's six and a half games and eight in the loss behind the Dodgers. And we all know the success of the Giants last year will not come anything close to what they did last year, but they should be in the mix when it comes to the pennant race and the postseason as we get deeper into the summer. But that was just a tough series for them to lose, and we'll see what happens with the White Sox as we move along. Cardinals, Brewers, and the NL Central, they are just two games behind as they seem to flip-flop here from week to week. The Cardinals were able to have a, I don't know, what was it, maybe a week to 10 game lead there at first in the NL Central, but now the Brewers have leapfrog over them, so we'll see how long that lasts in the Central. And then in the East, a week from today, we have Mets and Braves. That's going to be the start of 15 crazy games over the summer. And the Mets were able to win two out of three against the Rangers over the weekend where the Braves did the same. But with the Braves losing yesterday, the Mets gained the game back. They are three and a half, four in the loss in the NL East. And with Max Scherzer scheduled to come back tomorrow and Jacob DeGrom with a start yesterday where he struck out five and cracked 100 on the gun. All right, it sounds good, but with him, you still have to cross your fingers and hold your breath with Jacob DeGrom based on him not pitching in almost a year. July 7th was his last start in the major leagues last year. And even if he comes back 100% full, clean bill of health, I'm still going to be nervous and wondering when that other shoe is going to drop. I don't know if that's just the cynical, jaded Met fan in me 
I trust Scherzer and his health. Not to say it's a lot more than DeGrom, but we only hope that Scherzer, as he gets back on the mound tomorrow, will be able to pick up from where he left off the last time he was on the City Field mound, which was, what, May 18th. As the schedule starts here July 4th, they're in Cincinnati, the Mets that is, for three games before the Marlins come to town for four, where the Braves play four against St. Louis at home before going to Washington, I believe, this weekend for three. So, obviously, we'll continue to keep an eye on those two teams leading up to the big series next week in Atlanta between the aforementioned Mets and Braves. And then in the American League, Yankees shut out yesterday, but did what they had to do, winning another series in Cleveland. 58-22, and 22, tops in the sport. They're at 80 games, just a game shy. And it's embarrassing to know that it's July 4th, and we talked about this on Memorial Day, how these teams, for whatever the reason, they're not on the schedule when it comes to the, the holidays. So... If you're wondering, Yankee fans, where, oh, Yankees got to be playing somewhere. They're on Yes or maybe ESPN. Who are they playing today? They are not on the schedule. They have a two-game series in Pittsburgh starting tomorrow before they go to Boston on Thursday for their first trip to Fenway this year. So embarrassing as it is, whether it's Memorial Day, July 4th, or Labor Day, everybody in baseball should be playing. Disgrace to say the least. But the Yankees have a 13.5 game lead over the Red Sox. As I mentioned, they'll see them on Thursday. Toronto, who won the first two games of a five-game set against the Rays over the weekend, but then they lose the back three. So Toronto could have really done some damage there to the Rays, although they have a slight edge half game in the American League East. Obviously, those teams, Red Sox, Jays, Rays, are going to be jockeying for a playoff position down the road. So that's a race that we're going to really pay attention to as we get toward the All-Star break. We talked about the Twins and White Sox with a big series there. Guardians losing two out of three, although they shut out the Yankees there yesterday. But all those teams, Twins, Guardians, White Sox, pretty much separated by two games. Even though the Guardians have a million games in hand, Twins have already played 82 games. Guardians have played 76, so they have six games in hand. And the White Sox are a game under 500, but two in the loss, even though four and a half back. But let's see if they can make up some ground as they host the Twins here. And think about this. The White Sox actually play better on the road than they do at home. They are five games under at home, and they're going to have to change that quickly if they want to get back in this race, especially if they want to get themselves in position to challenge the Twins and maybe even overtake them. So this is a good start for them to get rolling, considering they... Leave San Francisco with a sweep. So we'll keep our eyes on that here as we get toward the podcast later on the week. And then the Astros, right now, they're the hottest team in baseball. We saw what they did to the Mets last week. They beat the Yankees in that quick one-game series, 2-1 to there on Thursday. And then they swept the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim three over the weekend. They won six in a row. They were actually two games where they had the Yankees walk off on them Last weekend when they visited the Bronx, they're flying high in the AL West as it is, but here's a team that has not skipped a beat. Even if you're Carlos Correa going to Minnesota, even if you're Garrett Cole a couple years back going to the Yankees, 
what can you say? The Astros have just been red hot. And you could pretty much pencil them in or in Sharpie. Forget about pencil. Put them in Sharpie to win a division as they are 13 and a half games, 14, really 15, over the Seattle Mariners. And that's pretty much an overview here as we're pretty much at the halfway point. I know a lot of teams have played, like I mentioned, 76 games, 77, 78. The Mets have played 79, 49, 30. Yankees, like I mentioned, a game under the halfway point. Twins, a game over. The Cardinals are right at 81. Same for the Brewers. So we have reached that point. Although the All-Star break, a lot of people look at that as the halfway point. No, it is right now. And as we get to the All-Star break, and even past that, that Thursday pod will really get into playoff races, wildcard races in particular. And as I mentioned around Memorial Day, and I'll say it right now, when you look at the American League, it's Yankees, Red Sox, Jays, Rays, Twins, you have to throw in the Guardians and White Sox as of now, that's seven teams and the Astros. So you have eight teams, the Yankees and Astros are shoe-ins, the Central right now is up for grabs, and then the other wildcard spots are going to be Boston, Toronto, Tampa. So you're going to have, in essence, six teams for four spots because we're putting the Astros and Yankees aside. That's what we're looking at in the American League. And then in the National League, Mets, Braves, all right, I'll throw in the Phillies, Brewers, Cardinals, Padres, Dodgers, Giants. Three teams in the East, two in the Central, three in the West. You can't really say Dodgers, Mets put aside like you can with Yankees, Astros. But they have the two best records. Similar scenario, if you want to do that, then it's six teams for four spots. Other than that, that's what you have in baseball. You have the teams that are good, a couple teams hanging around, and everybody else is playing for 2023. And sadly, that's what you have when it comes to any type of competitive balance, which is very little to none. Once you get to October, it should be exciting. And yes, we may see how those 6 for 4 play out in both the American and National League. But other than that, you don't have much. All right, a couple of quickies before we say goodbye. Well, really two things I'll delve into and then a couple of quickies to cap it off. Wimbledon, as we're into the second week, we saw Iga Swantek, the women's number one player in the world, who had won 37 consecutive matches, was ousted here over the weekend by Alitsi Cornet in straight sets, which was an upset to say the least. Cornet, I couldn't pick out of a lineup, but congratulations to her. And Swantek, I didn't see the match, but it was pretty much, what, 6-2-6-4, I believe it was, or I may have it in reverse. Maybe Swantek ran out of gas. Maybe there was an injury that she hasn't disclosed. I don't know, but that was just unforeseen, especially from the tennis fan. To have her go out now leaves the women's side wide open, and even Coco Goff, who had lost to Amanda Anisimova, who's going to play Harmony Tan, which is your Cinderella story. Harmony Tan, we talked about the other day in the epic match against Serena Williams there last Tuesday. Who? What? Harmony? Who? But yes, she's still around. She's still... Here at the tournament, she's going to play Anisimova up next. So let's see if Tan could really make a statement and continue this magic carpet ride, as I like to call it, to see if she can get to a semifinal, a final, and maybe win the whole thing, which would be one of the most unlikely stories that we've ever seen in sports. 
Harmony Tan, another person that even if she fell on you, you wouldn't know she is. She still has plenty of tennis to play, but she's made it into the second week, and we'll see how that shakes down here. But the women's side, wide open. Obviously, a lot of the top players have gone. We talked about Emma Raducanu last week. And I know you still have a couple that are still hanging around as I take a look real quick to see what's happening there. I believe Angelique Kerber is still laying in the weeds as a player that could come out on top. But we'll see how that shakes down here over the course of the next few days. And on the men's side, you still have Nadal. You still have Djokovic. Unfortunately, Djokovic will not face Carlos Alcaraz in the next round because Alcaraz was beat yesterday by Yannick Skinner, who is the number 10th player in the world. Skinner is a guy that maybe not on a lot of people's radar, but sure, yesterday was one as he beat Alcaraz in four sets. He will go up against Djokovic, I believe, tomorrow. And then you have the bad boy of tennis, Nick Kyrgios, who has now made it into this week. But the story over the weekend was he and Stefano Tsitsipas as they were back and forth going at it. But it was more Kyrgios and the referee or the official there as he called him a disgrace based on Tsitsipas hitting the ball out of bounds and into the crowd, which was intentional. In the post-match, Tsitsipas is calling Kyrgios a bully, also has an evil side, and then Kyrgios fights back by saying Tsitsipas is soft, which is good. I get it that there's only a handful of tennis fans that are going to watch future tournaments, maybe even the U.S. Open, if they both match up again as a little bit of a rivalry. The sport needs that, even with the likes of Djokovic, Nadal, and even Alcaraz, the young upstart. But Kyrgios, as we've seen, he's had terrible behavior. He was fined along with Tsitsipas because of their display there on Saturday, but he was also fined early in the tournament as he was called for unsportsmanlike conduct uh, after an opening round win. He's a guy that has, obviously, a big attitude. He's very fiery, wears his heart on his sleeve, pretty much has a game where he doesn't really care, doesn't pretty much respect his opponents, and who knows how long that shtick could last, because if you had that type of attitude or that type of demeanor and you're winning Grand Slams or you're winning tournaments then there'll be a little bit more appeal. But the guys don't want anything, and I understand that's part of his makeup and his DNA, and all right, that's fine. Kudos to you, my guy, but obviously it hasn't gotten him anywhere as far as success, as far as titles, championships, things of that nature, but let's see if he has it in him to go deep into this week, to make it to a semifinal, to make it to a final, and finally come out victorious to back up all of the nonsense that Kyrgios performs on the court with his antics, I mean, listen, he called the ref a disgrace. I'm sure he's going to get fined for that because how in the hell are you going to disrespect the official there based on what Sissipas did? And I get it. He hit the ball intentionally into the crowd and he went over to him and said, hey, how come he's not at fault for that? And then, oh, you're a disgrace. I don't know if that's just him losing his cool. I don't know if that's just Kyrgios, period. But we've seen this type of behavior from him in the past and obviously it's not going to change. But to me, in order for that to really stick... Win some tournaments. So that's all I have to say about that. So Wimbledon should be interesting this week. I know the culmination would be for Djokovic and Nadal to go at it. We know the epic battles that they've had, especially just last month at the French Open in that quarterfinal. But to see them in a final in that setting where Nadal's going to go for his third straight Grand Slam this year, victory, and he's already two ahead of Djokovic 
all time. And for Djokovic to inch that closer, if he gets a win over Nadal, or even if he just wins overall, but it'd be sweeter if he does it against Nadal, that's going to be what everybody's going to anticipate. That's going to be what the buildup is heading deep into this week. And let's see if we get that come Sunday, center court, Old England Club on the men's side. And the women's right now, it's a toss-up as to who's going to be in a final and will win Wimbledon here in 2022. I want to get to this college football scenario with the Pac-12, USC, UCLA to join the Big Ten as early as 2024. And for those who have listened to me in the past, of course I got into the college football a lot last year and college basketball took a while for me to get warmed up and then if you listen to any of what I discussed going back to March Madness, obviously I go full bore into all that, but college sports has not been the same and I've been more of a college basketball fan than I have been college football Living here in the Northeast is not really a team that you're going to gravitate to. Whether at least in college basketball, locally, you could go St. John's, you could go Syracuse. I've been a Georgetown fan my whole life. So with the Big East and having that conference, you don't have that in college football. I'm not rooting for Rutgers. I'm not rooting even for Syracuse football. Not rooting for UConn. Not going to root for any of these teams. And this is going back to when I was a boy. So with that being said... College sports, as we've seen over the years, and especially now recently, with the transfer portals, a lot of it due to COVID, and especially with the NILs, the name, image, and likeness, with these players being able to make money outside of the college football realm. And now you have a scenario where you're going to take two teams, USC and what they've meant to college football going way back. Not so much UCLA, but still... We know UCLA is a brand, especially when it comes to basketball. To have them move to the Big Ten in two years, what that means for college football in particular is that I see, and it's no secret, it's eventually going to be from the Power Five to the Big Two. And the Big Two is going to be, obviously, the SEC and whatever the Big Ten, Big Twelve, Forget about the Pac-12 and forget about the ACC because the ACC is Clemson. Forget about North Carolina, Miami, Florida State. Uh Uh-uh. You know that they're going to join forces. Clemson's going to meet up with the Big Ten, but you know there's going to come a point where they're going to jump into the stew, the pot, and you're going to stir it and you're going to have all these teams be a conference unto itself as well as the SEC And it's pretty much going to be the big boys and everybody else. We talk about competitive balance in baseball. You are not going to see that in college football. As it is, you haven't seen that over the last few years because when we look at the college football playoff, who is always there? Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Ohio State, Oklahoma. Yeah, you want to sprinkle in a Cincinnati or obviously Notre Dame. Of course, you could do that. But the powerhouses in college football have always been there. And they are not going anywhere. That's what you're going to have here in the years to come. How much fun is it going to be to watch if you root or you're an alumni at Maryland? Or as I mentioned, University of Miami, Florida State. Name any of these teams. It's just an out in out disgrace the way college sports and we all know how corrupt and terrible it's been and yes we watch on Saturdays and college basketball etc but the cream rises to the top 
and with USC and UCLA defecting to the Big Ten, it's the beginning of the end for college football. And it has been for quite some time, just knowing with the playoff system, and right, they're going to expand at some point, you would think, once these conferences really start to come into their own in a sense where when the dust settles and it's all said and done, where we'll probably end up having these two conferences and then we'll have the playoff. And it, But we all know it's going to be the same cast of characters every year. And sadly, not only has it become tiresome and with the greed and everything else that college football has entailed over the last God knows how many years, but the competitive balance... There hasn't been any, and there won't be any moving forward. So if you root for Arizona State, or if you root for Stanford, there's no Gonzagas in college football. You want to say Cincinnati last year? Okay, what did that do for them in the semifinal last year? That's all you need to know. And how much people are going to like that moving forward, even the Dine Wool college football fan, they probably won't but they're probably still going to watch because it's a sport that they love and college football has grown exponentially here over the last few years. Well, really over the last decade or so, especially now with the playoff, et cetera. But I don't like it. It's ruined the sport even that much more. And of course, I'm going to continue to follow it and share my thoughts, opinions, analysis on it. But yeah, it is just a, a black mark. And like I said, the beginning of the end when it comes to college football on a whole based on everything we've seen, not only just with what I mentioned, the NILs, the transfer porters, but the rich will continue to get richer and these teams will continue to stockpile and recruit and everybody else is just going to fall by the wayside. Because if you're not going to be a part of those conferences, then why even bother playing? That's what it's come down to. To wrap up a couple of quickies, on the ice, NHL, you have the draft which will take place Thursday and Friday. Usually it's Friday, Saturday, but this year I guess they moved it up a day. And then you'll have free agency the week after on the 13th, so we'll take a look at that. But the player positioning, or I should say the transactions have already been taking place, especially in Tampa, as they have to deal with the cap, trying to re-sign a guy like Andre Palat. As it is, they signed Nicholas Paul, their forward, to a seven-year, $22 million deal. But with that... They had to trade Ryan McDonough to the Nashville Predators for a couple of players. And it was a tough trade, a tough deal for not only the agent for McDonough, but also for the organization, how much he's been a part of the fabric of that team. But this is what happens when you have cap issues and you have a team that's made a tremendous run over the last three postseasons. Sadly, you're going to have to make these tough decisions to trade off key pieces to your team in order to extend the guy like Andre Palat, who is as clutch as anybody in the National Hockey League, especially come playoff time, you're just not going to let him go. And they've already let the Blake Coleman's of the world and the Yanni Gord's in the expansion draft last year's of Seattle. So now they had to make even a bigger move by letting McDonough go. And I'm sure you're going to see a lot of trades here between now and the draft and maybe during draft night as we get just a few days closer to the offseason as far as free agency and trades are concerned. So that's one thing you have to look out for here in the coming days if you're an NHL fan. Quickly with the class of the 2022 NHL Hall of Fame, and I am not in favor of any of these guys, and I'm sorry, and I'll pull up the numbers here to back it up. For starters, I am a hard marker when it comes to the Hall of Fame. 
if the name rolls off the tongue and you have to think about it, they're not Hall of Famers. And I get it that these guys have had success and they've had long careers. So you can look at them as compilers. But when we look at the Sedin twins in Vancouver, Henrik and Daniel, their teammate Roberto Luongo, and Daniel Alfredson, the longtime Ottawa Senator, who will now be next up, and all made it on their first ballot. So this isn't a situation where they've had to wait two, three, four, five years in order for them to finally get enshrined into the Hockey Hall of Fame. But let's go through this real quick. Now, Henrik Sedin, I'll give it to him. He did win an MVP back in the 2009-2010 season. 29 goals, 83 assists, 112 points. Fine. Black type, four times. Three times led the league in assists. Led in points with the Art Ross Trophy for most points in the sport. And obviously, with an MVP, all right, fine. But when you look at his overall numbers, and I get it that the game has changed more from the 80s and 90s. You're not going to have a ton of 50-goal scorers, even 40-goal scorers. And we know who these snipers are in the league. And Henrik Sedin was more of a playmaker. But he averaged less than a point a game. In fact, he played in 1,330 regular season games, but only has 1,070 points to show for it. That's not Hall of Fame worthy, in my book, even if he won an MVP. There's been plenty of players in every sport that's won MVPs, but are not in the Hall of Fame. Dale Murphy comes to mind in baseball, and he won back-to-back in the 80s. As far as Daniel Sedin, he cracked 100 points once. He has scored 40 goals, really 50 is a barometer, but you want to say 40? Okay, fine. He's only done that in his career one time. And he scored 30 goals, if you want to look at that as a barometer, two other times, well, really three other times in his career. 36, 31, and 30. Other than that, in 1,306 regular season games, 1,041 points. Not Hall of Fame worthy. Roberto Luongo, long career, drafted by the Islanders, as we all know. Played his career in Florida, but also the bulk of it in Vancouver. Yes, he does have 489 career victories, which probably, I think, ranks fourth all time. Fantastic. Never won a Vezina Trophy as the best goalie in the league. In fact, he was in the top five in the Vezina one, two times. Actually, four times. My apologies. He was second once, third twice, fourth two times. All right, so five. My math is completely off. Five times. But he played... 20 years. Compiler. Is he a Hall of Famer? Not in my books. He led the league in wins once. He did win 40 or over 40 twice. Never won a cup. Had a chance to win a cup in Vancouver. Lost a game seven in his building. Actually got shut out. That's not his fault, but didn't win. Not Hall of Famer. And sorry to say, even Daniel Alfredson, another guy who had a couple of big years, who scored 40 goals twice. 30 goals once, twice. That's it. A lot of 20 goal seasons. A lot of production. Now, his games total to points a lot better than the Sedin Twins. 1,178 regular season games, 1,108 points. Not all of Famer. Again, if you don't make it to the Hall of Fame, it's not an insult. So for the hockey fan, baseball, basketball, whatever, oh, Jay Reels, come on, you're crazy. Again, It's for the dominant. It's for the automatic. When you say the name, it's automatic. Gretzky, 
Lemieux, Trottier, Orr, Potvin, Crosby, Ovechkin, soon to be McDavid, Hall of Fame. Not Alfredson, not Sedin, not Luongo. Sorry. And then lastly, Brandon Grace in historic, when you think about it, the Live Golf Tournament in Portland, Oregon over this weekend where he was the first player to win here stateside. Gets $4.4 million, I think, for his victory in the second ever Live Golf Tournament. Did anybody watch? Does anybody care? I sure didn't. I'm just bringing it up only because it's the first time it's happened here. But again, I can't even think to wrap my arms around this Live Golf League. It, I just bring it up. If you watched, I don't even know where you could watch it. That's the sad part. We're on some bootleg website or on a jailbreak fire stick. I don't even know. But there's your U.S. first time live golf tournament winner, Brandon Grayson. I wouldn't know who he is if he knocked on my door and gave me his ID. Brandon Grayson, who, who are you? I wouldn't even know. With that said, people, that's how I'm going to go out. To close out this podcast, I appreciate each and every one of you for stopping by, listening to me, where I'm sure you get your sports news, entertainment from other podcasts and other platforms, but just knowing that you're here, first and foremost, it does not get taken for granted, so thank you for spending a few minutes out of your day and listening to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, just like I mentioned at the top, Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I would greatly appreciate it. Increasing the visibility of this podcast is a must. And by you doing so, it's going to help get the word out for those who aren't familiar with this podcast as I try to get guests here in the coming weeks. So if you could just do your part, again, I would greatly appreciate it. If you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, suggestions, etc., you could do so on any of my social media accounts. That would be... TikTok, the J Reels Podcast, Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels, one just a number, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, and the old fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. Lastly, if you want to contribute to this podcast, this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate your contribution. It will go towards this endeavor, the upkeep of the website, which I'm tweaking here and there, but I'll keep you guys and gals posted as to what I do with the website, the production, equipment, anything and everything that has to do with this experience from microphone to your earbuds or speakers to come in crystal clear, to enunciate, to share my thoughts, opinions, and analysis because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. Sports has been my life. Sports is in the blood. Sports is in the DNA. If you couldn't tell by now, then I don't know. I guess I'm going to have to step my game up that much more because whether it's critiques, whether it's praising, whether it's analyzing all that's going on, whether it's the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it, from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. 
From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Enjoy your 4th of July holiday, whatever it is you may be doing. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.